If you have Bibles with you, open them up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 will be our text this morning, uh, specifically verses 33 through 37. If you have the Version app, remember to go to the events section. You can find the outline there and follow along with us as well. At the beginning of the year, we started a series of messages in Matthew chapter 5, and it was going to be just one series of messages, and it turned into two. And then I hit a brick wall on this series of messages, and we took a little bit of a break. And, and so we're coming back to this series right now to begin to finish it up. Uh, the first of this would have been the kingdom values. We looked at these values commonly known as the Beatitudes. And, and what we looked at with these values is this understanding that every value is expected of every follower of Christ. And those values, the be poor in spirit, will know our sin and our desperate need for Christ. That will mourn over our sin and that mourning will lead us to repentance of that sin. Uh, that will be meek. This, this is a person who has this understanding that their sin has led them to a position that hope can only be found in Christ. And so that meekness of our soul realizes that apart from Christ, we're nothing. Uh, and that will hunger and thirst after righteousness, right? This newfound righteousness that we have in Christ will cause us to seek more and more of it. Also, that we'll be merciful, realizing that someone who's been forgiven of sin will move from that grace they've been given to give that grace to other people. And then that we'll have a purity of heart, right? This purity of heart is this chasing after holiness. And this really, this chasing after holiness that comes from within. And then finally, that last beatitude is that we'll be peacemakers. And there's more to just removing conflict from this idea of being a peacemaker. Actually, what comes to mind here is the reality that once we have found peace with Christ, that we understand that our task, our role, is to bring other people into a right relationship with Jesus Christ so that they have peace with him as well. Where will that lead? Well, look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you uh, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus reminds us, right, that when we live this way, life's not just going to be this series of blessing after blessing after blessing. As a matter of fact, as we live this way, we put ourselves in a position, and that position is to be persecuted. That position is to have the world against us. And this is a reality for every follower of Christ. From here, Jesus reminds us, reminded us of our responsibility to be salt and light. Remember, salt was to prevent decay, and light was used to expel or expose darkness. And then from there, we get the most challenging passage of Scripture, I think, in the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's that one passage of Scripture that should cause all of us to really question deeply into our hearts, and that's found in verse 20. Jesus said, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, think about that for a moment. I know on our side of the Bible, we oftentimes look at the scribes and Pharisees and we tear them apart. But these are guys that dedicated every aspect of their life to know the law, to live the law, and challenge other people to do the same. And Jesus looks at his disciples, that's who I believe he's talking to here, and he says, listen, guys, if you want to inherit the kingdom... Your righteousness has to be greater than theirs. 
And this should have immediately helped them to understand that the only way that's able to take place is through Christ. And from here, Jesus went on to begin to challenge the status quo of the law. And what was that status quo? That these scribes, these religious leaders would take God's law, and on top of God's law, they would put human tradition. And that human tradition is what they held everybody responsible to keep. And so much so that people were put out of society if they didn't hold their traditions. And so Jesus comes along and he looks at these scribes and Pharisees, and we'll see this over and over, looking at his disciples. He says, listen, you have heard that it was said. And from that, he, he, we've looked at three of those so far in this series. By the way, you can go back to our website or our Facebook page and catch up with this if you'd like to. Uh, verse 21, you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And Jesus opens it up a little further. If you'll remember, he says, but I say unto you not to hate your brother, not to have hatred in your heart. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus looks at them. If you'll remember right in that passage of scripture, we learned that in the Jewish tradition that really it was only possible for a betrothed woman to commit adultery or a married woman to commit adultery. And if it wasn't a woman, then it was somebody sleeping with a betrothed woman or married woman. That's how they committed adultery. And Jesus says, but I tell you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed sin. Verse 31, he says, whoever divorces his wife, let him leave her for a certificate of divorce. And he opens up that idea of what was really intended. In all six of them, here's what Jesus is doing. He's taking the Ten Commandments and he's challenging them to live them out the way God intended for them to live them out. See, God, or through Jesus Christ, he was not reducing the law. He was not making the law any easier to live. As a matter of fact, Jesus was really declaring if your righteousness is going to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then you're going to need a purity of heart. You're, you're going to need to hunger and thirst for righteousness in such a way that everything about your life will be different. Let me pray for us before we move into our next one. Father, we thank you so much for the love and grace you give us, for the opportunity to have your word open. May your spirit bind us with the truth of your word and encourage us to walk out of here, Lord, living it. We pray these things in your son's name. Talk about an embarrassing moment in front of lots of people. At the inauguration ceremony of the new President Obama on January the 20th, 2009, Supreme Court Justice John Roberts stood wearing his black robe and the high podium in front of the Capitol before a million people gathered together there in the Washington Mall and millions of people watching television. Facing him stood Barack and Michelle Obama. Obama placed his left hand on the same Bible used by Abraham Lincoln at his inaugural ceremony, and he raised his right hand. And, and Roberts asked, are you prepared to take the oath, Senator? And Obama replied, I am. Roberts began, you know, I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear. But halfway through the line, of uh, Obama interrupted him and began repeating the line. Roberts paused and, and Obama repeated the entire first line. Then Roberts quoted the next line of the oath, but he quoted it incorrectly. And here's why this is important. I'm not going to go on to read exactly how he misquoted it. But people understood that when they gave this oath incorrectly and it was repeated incorrectly, that there might be a, a legitimate challenge to the presidency of the United States of America. And so the very next day, what they did in a map room is Chief Justice Roberts and Barack Obama met again and to make sure that the oath of office was given the proper way. Why? Because words matter. They matter. Our words matter. 
What we say matters. And, and that's uh, what I hope we take away uh, from our time together this morning. The taking of oaths is important. Most of the time, men cannot be taken at their word. Most of the time, as a matter of fact, back in 1991, there was a book released called The Day America Told the Truth. And in that book, it was claimed that 91% of people lie on a regular basis. Think about that, 91% of the people. So we can just look around and one out of 10 people in this room tell the truth. The rest of us are filthy liars, right? I mean, some of those lies are big lies, right? We understand that. But some of those lies are those little white lies, those things that we can get away with in society, uh, right? Those things that are acceptable uh, to say to people. It's said that if the entire world were to tell the truth for just one day, the entire system would collapse. Think about that in Wall Street. If all these bankers told the truth, Right? What would happen to the stock market tomorrow? What would happen if politicians would all of a sudden say, you know, I really don't care about you, but I'm going to tell you this so that I get your vote. By the way, both the elephant and the donkey does that. And what would happen then? Man, the entire system would collapse. And when I began to first study this passage of Scripture, uh, internally I was going through a lot, and I, I looked at this and I was a little underwhelmed, like, okay, there's really not a thus saith the Lord in this, this passage. And, and truth is, there's not something in this passage of Scripture that elicits a lot of emotion that's going to get us high-fiving each other or rolling in the aisles. But the challenges in this passage of Scripture are pure. They're true. Here's why. Anytime the Bible mentions about how we use our tongue and what we say, it's important. Jesus declared, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Jesus declared, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and thus defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. The Bible declares in James, if anyone thinks he is a religious man and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is what? Worthless. See, so the words that we say are important and how we say them are important. And so if, if that's true, then, then everything that Jesus is going to declare, we really have to grab a hold of and make sure we understand the importance of that. So with that being said, from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simple, yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus declared, again, you have heard that it was said. Uh, these are things that are regularly taught, something put on top of God's word and his expectation. When I initially began to read through these, uh, this in the Sermon on the Mount, I, I wondered, why isn't Jesus dealing with taking the Lord's name in vain? And then it just kind of popped up. Here he is. Th th this is what he's talking about right here for us. I wonder if any of the disciples would have had the courage to say to him, I'm Lord, uh, I, you know, that is in the law. That's there. Leviticus 19, verse 12. Of course, they didn't have the chapter verse. 
But they could have said these words. This is what it says, Lord. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. But I say unto you, Jesus says, do not take an oath at all. And to this, the apostles, the disciples that were there had to begin to wonder, okay, what's he mean here? Are we not supposed to take any kind of oaths? And there are some that kind of take it to that extreme. Our Quaker friends take it to that extreme and say you can't make an oath at all. So therefore, you can't sign a promissory note on a loan. You can't make a wedding vow in front of others. It's wrong to place your hand on a Bible in a court of law and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And if that's the case, is this what Jesus was saying? No. I learned this principle in Bible college. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. Uh, and, and so we have to understand when we dig through Scripture, Jesus could not have meant that. Why? Because, well, God himself took an oath. There in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, really there, verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to, by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And then he opens up in this passage of Scripture, Tom will flip through there, to basically say that we know that God's word can be trusted because he spoke this oath based upon who he is, and God cannot tell a lie. So, so we know that Jesus can't be declaring that, that, that no one can take an oath because God took an oath. Well, one might begin to make the argument, well, God is God, and since God is God, he has the prerogative to do what he wants, and so uh, therefore that's still there. The truth is, when you look through the Old Testament, all the great men of the Old Testament and heroes of faith either took or gave oaths. Abraham. In Genesis chapter 24, uh, and having his servant make a promise that he wouldn't take a wife from among the Canaanites, there was an oath. Isaac, between him and Abimelech, when he swore, they swore not to harm one another, Genesis 26. Jacob, in Genesis 31, God, God uh, called the Lord as a witness between him and his father-in-law that they wouldn't harm each other. David and Jonathan make a promise to each other. David makes an oath in 2 Samuel chapter 19. You see, the pillars of faith, of Jewish faith, were all men who took or gave oaths. Numbers 30 verse 2 says this, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And from the perspective of the law, here are some truths that we must remember. Oaths are to be given only in the name of God. Deuteronomy 6.13 It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. Deuteronomy 10.20 You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. Isaiah 65 So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles, troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. One should be careful, though, and when we understand this, that the Bible also gives us this idea, be careful to make a rash oath. You know what a rash oath is. It's a quick promise. This is what uh, jo uh, um, Joshua did when the Gilead, Gileadites came to him and said, you know, we're from a far-off land, and before he, he approached God and, and his wisdom to see if that was something he should do, he entered into a covenant with him. This is what Jephthah did. Do you remember Jephthah's story? He was one of the judges, one of the most tragic stories in all of the Bible. He, God was sending him off to a battle, and he made this oath, Lord, if you'll give me victory in this battle, I'll sacrifice the first thing that walks out of my door when I return. Man, what a stupid oath. Because as soon as he returned, his daughter was the first thing that walked out of his door. 
This is what Samuel or Saul did. And when he promised to have any man who would eat food put to death, and his son Jonathan, who didn't hear that oath, ate some honey, and the men of Israel had to stand in the gap for Jonathan because of Saul's rash oath. Every vow made must be fulfilled. We've already seen the Bible verses enough to know this truth, but even in the New Testament, there are oaths that are given. And I know I'm given a lot of verses. I counted them. 21 different passages of Scripture I'm using this morning uh, for this point. But even in the New Testament, Romans 9.1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. And he's given an oath. 2 Corinthians 1.23, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. He gave an oath. Once again, look at what Jesus declared. Verses 34 through 36. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Right? In their view, here's what was taking place. And man, don't we do something similar all the time with the passage of Scripture? In their view, they were taking the letter of the law and saying, okay, if I make a vow by the name of the Lord, I've got to fulfill that vow. But if I don't make a vow by the name of the Lord, haven't we done those same things? Don't you remember when you were a kid and one of your friends said, hey, I want you to make a promise to me. And in order for you not to be able to take your hands and put them behind your back and cross your fingers, you had to have your hands out and do a pinky promise with somebody. That way people could know you weren't crossing your fingers. Like, I promise and I'm going to do this, but my fingers are crossed, so therefore I don't have to fulfill this vow. See, this is what the Jewish people were doing at this time. And so they were finding all of these things to make these rash oaths and promises that really just didn't count. And, and so long as they didn't make it in the name of the Lord, they could break that vow. This is the idea that was being taught. And so Jesus says, listen, you guys know better than this, right? You're, you're really smarter than this. You, you're you're going to swear by heaven? Well, that's God's throne room. You can't get away from God there. You're going to swear by earth? Well, that's his footstool. Do you really think you can get away from him there? You're, you're going to swear by the city of Jerusalem? Well, that's the city of the great king of kings, the Lord of lords. What do you think you're doing? He expounds upon this further in Matthew 23. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Man, what if we talk to each other that way today? Right? You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus wanted to make this simple for them. That's right. You don't need to take an oath for every little thing in life. Here's what you need to do. Your logos, your word needs to be simple. And it just needs to be this, yes or no. Yes or no? Which is it? And so in those everyday occasions of life, people should be able to walk up to a follower of Christ and kingdom living. And when they talk to us and when they talk to the disciples then and to us, it should just be simple. Every time we open our mouths, it should be trustworthy. 
But the fact is, is we live in a wicked world and there are times that taking oaths are necessary. And there are times that we need to enter into those oaths, like signing a promissory note, like standing up in front of people with a spouse, making that promise that you're going to be faithful before God and these witnesses. Why? Because the world is wicked and there's a propensity in all of us that we can be drawn into that wickedness. And so when we take those oaths, on those really big important things in life, that's why it's important. A truly God per, godly person understands that. So there are two obligations that uh, I think are important for us to grab a hold of here. First, is we need to live in such a way that men will see our transparent goodness and will never need to ask for an oath. Live in such a way that men will see our transparent goodness and never need to ask for an oath. It's easy to make a promise, even at the smallest levels. Man, I, I think about that to my, my kids. I, I promise we'll do this, and then life slips in and gets in the way, and then all of a sudden I've broken this promise. And to me, I understand all of those big things that were happening away from that promise, but what did my kids see? Well, Dad broke another promise. Right. It's easy to make a promise to your spouse that you're going to do something. If you make that promise, do it. It's easy to make promises to other people that you're going to be there. Man, that's happened to me in ministry as well, where I'll tell somebody, hey, I'm going to give you a call this week, and life gets in the way, and other ministry gets in the way, and I didn't make the call. Once again, a promise broken. So, so we need to live in such a way that when we say these things, people will believe them. Every promise broken only feeds into the need to take an oath. Right? And so if you're approached regularly and somebody says, you tell them you're going to do something, and they say, do you promise? Man, maybe that should be a little bit of an alarm. It says, I've been living in such a way in the past that this isn't true. Right? It's not true. You've all heard me say that before Jesus saved me, football did. And uh, football didn't save me for eternity, but it saved me in life. What I love about the game of football is that it teaches us to do the very best that we can do for the sake of other people. And uh, just being an assistant coach, you, you don't get the opportunity to talk to players, all of the players often. And so, but when I am given the opportunity, every team that I've spoken to, I've talked to them about this importance to take a look around the room and to realize the people who are around that room and they're working. And, and you need to be able to look each person in this room in the eye and say, I'm doing my very best for you. I'm doing my very best for you. And your teammates need to be able to understand that when they see you, they see someone who's done their very best, that they're doing their very best in the classroom so that they can be on the field, that they're doing their very best in the weight room so that they can be stronger, that they're doing their very best every snap at every practice so that they can be prepared, and that they're doing their very best when you leave that field that you leave on empty so that your teammates know, hey, this isn't just about me. It's about everybody around me. I'm doing my very best for them. And here's then I take it a step further when I get a chance. Here's why this matters. Right now you're doing this for a game. But if the Lord blesses you for a woman to attach herself to you for all of eternity and for this life, then she's going to be counting on you to do your very best to love her the way Christ loved the church, if I'm talking to Christians. Your kids are going to be counting on you to do your very best to put food on the table and provide them a safe place to live. So you see, it's important that when we say we're going to do what we're going to do, we need to live in such a way that people believe it. And even those small actions, like doing my best on a football practice field, matter. It matters at work. It matters in our neighborhoods. It matters in our schools. 
Peter said it this way, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Second, we need to uh, seek to make this world such a place that falsehood and infidelity will be so eliminated from it that the need for oaths are abolished. I know that's a mouthful, but it's important. Remember, all of this is together. See, we read these passages of Scripture and we separate them. Remember what Jesus has already declared in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You're to be salt of the earth. You're to be the light of the world. And our jobs as followers of Christ is to leave a mark on the world. Is there any better way to leave a mark on the world than to live counterculturally? That when people see us, they understand that what we've said, we intend to do to the very best of our ability. We intend to do this. Imagine the difference this would make in the world of politics. Man, if a politician would stand up and say, I really do care about you. Instead of using lines like, I feel your pain just to win an emotional vote. Imagine what would take place in the lives of our families if our children could trust the words that we were saying. Uh, and, and that the moment a promise was broken, that they wouldn't think, man, dad did it again or mom did it again. That they would re immediately run to, man, there must be something wrong with mom or dad. There's something wrong because this isn't like them. Imagine how marriages would be if this would take place in every marriage, that we lived in such a way that our spouse would know that we've made this promise to them. And not only faithful with, with the idea of a physical relationship, but faithful in every area, every area of that relationship. Imagine the peace that would take place in every home. Imagine what would take place in the church if we truly believed that every person around us had the best interests of the church in mind. And then when little things would come up, man, those little things wouldn't be these mountains that we turn them into. Imagine what would take place in our worship and how worship would change if we were truly honest about the state of our heart, the temptations that we struggle with, the real us, right, that we give out the real us, not the cleaned up version of us, not this version that we think everybody wants to see, but just being real. Like instead of saying, man, how you doing? Well, I'm doing great. Being like one of my friends in Linesville. I'm going to clean it up a little bit for the pulpit. <laughs> Life really stunk this week. I looked at things on the internet I shouldn't have looked at. I had thoughts that I shouldn't have had. I'm, I'm really struggling in my faith. And I'm struggling. Imagine the difference that can be made if we were that honest with each other in our worship. The Bible says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Man, I want to close and with three positive outcomes if we live this way. First one, speaking the truth in love will strengthen our witness. Before becoming a follower of Christ, I worked at the Simmons Company, and, and I, this is when I started attending church here, sitting right over there about where Mason's at right now in a pew. And uh, there were two guys at Simmons Company that had a huge impact on my decision to make a, a decision for Christ. And, and one, I'm not going to use his real name because it's not a very positive impact. His name, uh, I'll call him Billy. 
Uh, see, we were all closers, meaning we walked backwards for 10 hours a day, putting that little tape around the edge of the, the border and the mattress, right? And it was a really well-paying job. It was the highest-paying job in the factory if you were a fast enough worker. And Willie trained me such a way. I worked right by him for a, a couple of weeks. He said, the only thing that matters is you get the ticket in your pocket, right? And nothing about the quality of what you were doing or anything else. But there was all something. I also I just said his name, didn't I? So there's also something else that he did. Uh, so... Uh, uh, every day he would find somebody different in the factory and he would point out, hey, man, unless you change, you're going to burn in hell. I'm not making it up. You're going to burn in hell. And he'd kind of get this laugh when he'd say, you're going to burn in hell. I think, man, what in the world? And here I, I, I'm trying to figure this whole Christianity thing out. And I just, well, if that's what it is, I don't want to be like him. And there was another guy named Dave. Dave Stevens was a quiet soul. He was actually a lay minister in his church. And uh, he had actually trained me on closing king-size mattresses because that's the area I was going to go to. And, and Dave said, it matters when you put your initials on the back of that uh, label. You need to have pride in what you're doing because God gives you a chance to do this. And then uh, Dave was never one to walk around and preach to people, but everybody in that factory, if they wanted somebody to pray for them, they'd walk to Dave. Interestingly enough, when I was ordained here, Dave was seated right about over there because I invited him. See, when you live in such a way that people see that what you say is true, it opens up an opportunity for a witness. It will strengthen our witness. And this has maybe, even though I say it's a positive outcome, there's a little bit of a negative fact to this too, that we as Christians need to speak the truth of God's word. And there are times that that's going to be uncomfortable. So, and it doesn't strengthen our witness to reduce the reality of hell. It doesn't strengthen our witness to pat everyone on the back on the way to hell. There are going to be times that we have to speak the truth to people. So speaking the truth will strengthen our witness. The second thing it will do is it will place us in a position to serve others and to be served by others. Who do you think people went to at Simmons? They went to Dave. So uh, he didn't remind them that they were going to hell. He worked hard uh, and he treated people with respect and people went to him to be served. And when people know they can count on you to tell them the truth, they're going to treat you and come to you the way that God intends and God well, that's the last point. I don't want to move on to that. The other side of this coin is, is this fact. There are times that we need Christians to help us in our walk, right? And, and when we need them, don't we oftentimes just cover up? I'm fine. I'm fine. Sadly, in the church, we've created that expectation for people to be fine because when they're really messed up, man, we start kicking them and pushing them out. It's really a sad reality about Christianity. But when we're honest, right? When we're honest about our struggles and we open up to other people, we really do place ourselves in a position to be served by them. It reminds me of one of my favorite stories there in Mark chapter 2. Read it sometime this week. Where four friends were carrying their friend to the feet of Jesus. Right? They, they got there and they couldn't get in. And so what did they do? They didn't turn around and say, oh, well, we did our best. Nope, they went up on the roof. They dug a hole in the roof and they lowered their friend to the feet of Jesus. You see, there are times that we're going to be one of those friends carrying the mat, but there are also times that we might be the guy on the mat or the woman on the mat. And unless we're truthful, when somebody says, how you doing? Maybe nobody's carrying us to the throne. Final thing, speaking truth, or the truth glorifies God. Dave Stevens glorified God in the character of his living. I, I believe that this is what Peter meant when he said, live such good lives. Live such good lives. See, when we speak as followers of Christ, people are listening. And it's amazing to me how much they're listening. Right? How much they understand what we say. So when we say we love Christ, the truth of our speech 
needs to be seen in the way that we live. And so when we make a vow or promise, do our best to fulfill it. One more passage of Scripture, 1 Peter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Did you see that challenge in there? You shall be holy as your father is holy. Follower of Christ. Is that us right now? And I don't think there's any greater place to start or any more challenging place to start than the actions of our lives matching the words that we say. And so when Jesus says, you know, listen, I say unto you not to make an oath, just let your word be simple, yes or no. And when we live that way, it strengthens our witness. When we live that way, it places us in a position to serve or be served. And when we live that way, God will be glorified. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the love, the grace that you give us in Christ. God, even in listening to these verses being read and the challenges that are there and, and how clear they are to be holy as you are holy and understanding, God, I'm, I'm not there. I'm struggling. And may the reality of our hearts come out of our mouths and may we seek to find people to help us in those times of struggle. God, help us to live in such a way that, that what we say and we understand what we say truly does matter. And that everything we do reflects upon you as followers of Christ. So, Father, if your spirit needs to convict anyone in this room, do so now, Lord. And help them to understand that your conviction doesn't come to shame or guilt, but it comes to lead to repentance. And God, may they begin to take those steps today. Father, help us to leave here in such a way that when people see us, they see you. And when they hear us, they simply hear yes or no for the glory of Christ. We pray these things in your Son's most holy name. Amen. If you've come into the room this morning and you've not yet made a decision to give your life to Christ, then today's that day that you can begin to take those steps of faith to, to put your trust in him. The Bible tells us that we believe, and here's what we believe, that we're sinners and that Jesus died in our place, that we confess him to be the Lord of our lives, that we repent, and repentance is turning away from sin and turning toward God, that we submit ourselves to Christian baptism. And from there, from there we begin that chase that Peter shared, you shall be holy is I am holy. We chase after that holiness. So if you need to make that decision today, please join me down in front as we stand and sing our song of invitation.